1: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I have Dr. Russ Roberts with us. Russ Roberts is the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He hosts the award-winning weekly podcast, Econ Talk, and is the author of three economic novels, and is also co-creator of the Keynes-Hayek rap videos. Russ, thanks for joining us.
0: Great to be with you, Doug.
1: So LCI as as our theme for the year has been human flourishing. And I have wanted to talk to a number of people this year for, you know, just to kind of get their thoughts and, you know, what do they think of when they think of human flourishing? And, you know, you were pretty much at the top of my list. And part of the reason for that has to do with you have interviewed so many people from a wide variety of fields of study and also sort of subfields you know because you know in economics there's all these kind of subfields and you can get all this data and information for people and the one thing that you can't do by just listening to one person like listening to hundreds and hundreds of people is you there has to be some sort of process of knowledge and so when you When you, Russ, have listened to all these people, I have sensed (laughs) listening to you for over 10 years that you have grown and you have developed and adapted as you've grown and, and learned from other people. And so I just want to talk to you about part of that experience and also, you know, what you think of when you think of things like human flourishing. So I guess that would would be a good place to start is if you heard the word or you talk about the word human flourishing at all, what do you think of? What would you explain to somebody?
0: That's an interesting question. I've never really tried to put it into words before. Uh, I always sort of assume that people share an understanding of what that means, but it is a vague term. I guess it means a few things. Uh, It means... To use one's gifts as best as one can, that is, whatever your skills are, uh, whatever things you've been able to acquire in that whole path and journey of acquiring those ideas and knowledge and then applying them to to the world around you, that's a part of human flourishing. It's the opportunity to overcome challenges that are inevitable in life, both personal, emotional, financial, uh, psychological. It's the idea that life has meaning when it's lived well and life is fulfilling and satisfying. It's not just uh, about pleasure or money. Those are two things that can be part of human flourishing, but they're not the whole of it. And therefore, as one searches for things that lead to deep contentment and satisfaction, to me, that that's an, another part of of human flourishing. So I would say it's a, it's a mix of Finding one's way in the world, applying one's skills to that world and uh, growing in different ways emotionally, financially, psychologically that that allow you to find meaning and and richness in, in existence.
1: I really like those answers. And of course, I think I would agree as well. The what what strikes me with your answer, and this is sort of how I think of human flourishing is from two different perspectives. One is the individual perspective. How do I find human flourishing for me and those around me? And, and how do I maybe even enable my children to achieve that and have a deep sense of meaning for their purpose in life? And then there's the other aspect of it is, well, you know, libertarians often think about, you know, the world at large. We we look at the world around us and we say, well, here's some things that we need to be against because they're bad for us. Um, You know, aggression, violence, war, meddling in other people's affairs, that kind of thing. And so there's the aspect of human flourishing that is more, I would say, more about the common good, more about the other people, not just me. What do you think about that?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I don't – I think when we think about what's a, what is a good society, what is a good community, what is a good country, we have in mind – at least I do – the idea that there is an opportunity for flourishing, that we are free to choose our own path, free to explore what we think is of interest and meaning to us, uh, and that there are no uh, or minimal restraints from government uh, or the people around us in in restraining us from exploring that that vision that we that speaks to us, you know. Your vision of the good life is unlikely to be mine, and I think the the power of a market-based approach, a freedom-based approach, is that our paths, our journeys toward our own uh, sense of of meaning and satisfaction, need not conflict. Uh, I talk about this in my book, *The Price of Everything*. The idea that my dreams are not yours, and yet somehow I can enjoy my dreams and my vision of the good life without stepping on your toes if the market is working well. an example a silly, a light example, I would say it's not silly, but a small example would be you know, I want to have a certain kind of diet. I might want to be a vegetarian or be gluten-free or be low carb or zero carb. And the marketplace provides lots of choices for me if I'm caring about those things. And yet if you want to be a couch potato, There's 30 kinds of potato chips for you to munch on while you watch TV. Uh, And that's just uh, an extraordinary thing that I don't lobby Washington to make sure there are enough carb-free or Mm -hmm. gluten-free or, in my case, kosher options. Um, The market, which is just a shorthand way of saying the interest that people have naturally in getting my attention in business solves that problem. And that's an important part of flourishing. There's so many things that that we are able to use and enjoy in a free society uh, without having to worry about whether they're going to be there or not. And that is what allows each of us to chart that that path for ourselves.
1: You know, I'm glad to use the example of the couch potato versus the, you know, the health health conscious person, whatever that choice set, set of choices may be. And I think, and and again, you know, the, the, the idea of a couch potato, you know, just on a Friday night only kind of thing, you know, everyone needs to relax or whatever. But I think when we think of choices like someone being health conscious versus someone who is just absolutely refuses to think about their health and just doesn't care and all of that, you know, we could look at, we could be somewhat, uh, judgmental maybe about that person and say, well, you're making poor life choices and you're making choices that no one would say, would result in a meaningful life or, or sort of leads to human flourishing. And I have had a hard time, maybe you can help me with this. I've had a hard time when discussing with people who tend to be a little bit more, um, sort of progressive and they want to sort of manage a lot more so that, you know, the poor aren't obese or, you know, people aren't making terrible choices like drinking, you know, six pints of soda. And, you know, they ask the question, "Well, like, is it really good for you to drink that much sugar?" And the answer I would answer is, "Well, no." and then well, then why should we why should it be something that we don't you know give people parameters within which they don't uh, go go against the human flourishing that they just don't know it yet?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty loath to take that perspective, obviously. you know, that kind of paternalism is great for a parent. you know, when I'm raised when I raised my children, my wife and I, when they were young, we limited their intake of all kinds of things because we thought it was the right thing for them. A part of being a parent is to recognize that there comes a day when – or a year uh, or a stretch where you have to let your kids choose mm-hmm. – make their own choices, make some mistakes. Uh, and um, I think when we do that through the government, of when we when we try to constrain people and, and decide what's best for them, I think there's two – obvious problems. One is we may not know what's best for them. We may choose something that we think is flourishing that is actually not for them. Uh, We may be subject to rent seeking and the government deciders may be influenced by people who have a natural incentive to use that power of the state to benefit themselves and pick things for people that are actually not particularly good for them. But keep the cronies happy. Mm-hmm. And of course, the third reason, like I said too, there's three reasons. The third reason is it's hard to flourish as a child. You know, the the idea of flourishing is to stand on your own two feet with the help of others, you know, working with others, living with others, interacting with other people. It's not a lonely, isolated individualism, mm-hmm. but it's the result of your choices where you bear the costs and benefits, the consequences of, of your actions and learn from them. And if, there's a master in Washington five hundred and thirty five masters, in case of Congress making those decisions for you. You're still a child. And I don't I think the infantilization of of society is one of the worst trends uh, that there is. You know we certainly see it with things like dietary restrictions we were talking about or you were alluding to, say, about sugar or soda or trans fat stuff. and then, At a bigger level, we see it with Social Security. We force you to to not to save for your old age. That'd be one thing, but we force you to give to other people who are old, so that when you're old, we can force other people to give that same Mm
1: -hmm. process
0: to Mm -hmm. help you. And I just find that um, that's what you do with a child with their allowance. You know, you say, "I'm not gonna. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you five dollars every time you do X, Y, Z, and I'll put it aside for you. Take care of it, so that when you get older, you'll have some money." Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's a good way to to parent, even it's certainly a bad way to govern.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the issue that this gets to is something like you know people talking about you know in the public discourse about something called the common good. Do you do you think something exists like that? Like, what do you think of with that phrase? Does that make you cringe? I know a lot of libertarians don't like that phrase. And
0: yeah, uh, I don't like that phrase. I don't know what it means. Um, I don't want to be attacked uh, as a nation and say dominated by an aggressor. Uh, there's some common good there. But once you get past those obvious examples of um, avoiding a takeover by a totalitarian neighbor or a militaristic neighbor uh, somewhere, you've really – that's like the end of the common good thing. Uh, and even that one, by the way, you could argue mm-hmm. – uh, people might argue that that it's complicated. But But in general, most things that the state does have – benefits for some and costs for others, the idea that somehow we can add those up to get a net benefit is the wrong way to think about it, my view.
1: When I began studying a little bit of economics, it had to, it really was around this whole idea of the common good and everybody in my world in in the Christian world was talking about the common good. They were also pretty progressive in their, in their politics and that didn't sit well with me. And so I had this sort of instinct to learn a little bit of economics and, you know, for a long time, five years or more even, I kind of had this thought that, like, you know, economics is like that's that's the ticket, that's the field that will help me understand what it means to be, you know, to understand something like the common good or human flourishing or just you know the good life or whatever. Yep. And I'm not quite so sure it's all that encompassing.
0: <laughs> nope.
1: Uh, I. It's not. Yeah, I suspect you don't either, and and maybe you can elaborate a little bit more, but. Your choice of guests over the last couple of years has expanded beyond strict economics. Oh yeah.
0: I'm less interested in economics um, than I used to be partly because I feel like I've learned what there is to learn. Uh, there's a lot more to learn. I just don't know of a guest that's going to teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you said to me, uh, I want to understand monetary policy. There, there are a lot of people out there who claim to understand it. Uh, I struggle to know what they're talking about a lot of the time. <laughs> so although they might make interesting guests. I'm generally not going to have many guests anymore on monetary policy because I feel like I've learned a chunk of what there is to learn and I'm not sure how fruitful it would be to hear another particularly mm-hmm. offbeat theory that explains everything using mm-hmm. the money supply. But I think the deeper question you're asking is, um, I, I do think economics promises uh, a road to the good life, a good, the good society. It does it in ways that are conceptually troubling. Uh, by trying to aggregate people's well-being across individuals uh, over time, uh, to purport to claim that this policy is better than that policy. I think economics, when done well, economics, when it's done well, is a line I often quote either from George Stigler or Thomas Sowell. I'm not sure. I can't remember now who said it, but no solutions, only trade-offs. So I think a lot of economists in the modern world offer solutions uh, and neglect the fact that a lot of those solutions have costs that they just don't want to think about, either for some subset of society or some uh, unseen effect of a policy that, that is harmful against the good that it claims to, to be achieving. And economics is a tool. It's not uh, a set of values. It is a way to think about, in particular for me, it's a way to think about what happens when people – are interacting together in what we call a market that is buyers trying to get the highest price they can sellers trying to pay the lowest price they can and what emerges from that is an orderly set of prices that over time often uh, become more attractive for consumers as innovation occurs and competition among suppliers provide lower prices and force them to pass on the savings that they've found from innovation and our standard of living rises. Understanding that process, which I just described in 15 seconds, (laughs) is an enormous, uh, complex set of ideas. And economics is a tool, a lens for thinking about that level of social complexity. That's the best, that's the good side. The the downside is is that economics is fundamentally about individual decision-making, and that's usually what you are interested in if you're trying to figure out, say, what would happen if we put a tax on uh, gasoline? It's, the, it's, a, the use, it's a useful perspective for uh, what will happen if we put a price ceiling on bread and who will bear the costs and benefits of that. So the focus on the individual, I think, is absolutely correct. And it's consistent with you know my classical liberal slash libertarian instincts. Mm. The problem with that is that it doesn't have much to say about a very large part of human experience. And that large part, economics then tends to just ignore. That large part being the things we do in groups that are not individualistic. So just to take an obvious example, the family. Uh, The family, although some economists, including Gary Becker, Nobel Prize winner, have analyzed it fruitfully using the tools of economics, in general, most economists have nothing to say about the family. They don't. Ca- they don't look at family dynamics. They don't think about the role that the family plays in my well-being. They look at the role my job plays in my well-being, or mm-hmm. my purchases, or my investments, or my uh, the business that I run. And those are all really important. Of course mm-hmm. they are, but they're dwarfed. <laughs> By my relationship with my parents, my children, my siblings, my cousins, in terms of my day-to-day happiness, my spouse, economics just doesn't have much to say about that. It has a little bit to say, but more importantly, the day-to-day practice of economics in the policy sphere just ignores that. Uh, there's no role in most uh, economists' models for the meeting that we get from uh, helping others, the satisfactions we get from being part of a team. Yes, you can model them. I did that in many papers I wrote when I was younger. I was very interested in the economics of charity and how it interacted with government welfare programs. So it's useful. But in general, economists just ignore all those things because they don't have much to say about it. Hmm. And I'm not saying I had a lot to say about it. That's why I did it. I didn't have much to say about it either. There's, there's a few things to say. But in general, once you've said those few things, you're, you're going quiet. We don't like to go quiet. We like to have something to say. We like people to pay attention to us. So we tend to look at other parts of, of of daily life and neglect those that are not amenable to our models. And what that means, of course, is that a lot of what we're thinking about is missing. I just take a silly example, a uh, trivial example. In 99.99% of the models that economists use, and by models, I don't mean necessarily a formal set of equations, but just a simple way of looking at the world, sort of the lens. In in most economists' way of looking at the world, uh, my well-being is determined by my command over goods and services, how much stuff I can acquire, how much stuff I can consume. Uh, so I would like to have things and my, the things I can have are limited by my income, and so I have to make trade-offs between what I, what I can actually buy because I can't have everything I want. That's a deep and important idea. It yields the idea of opportunity cost, that doing one thing or buying one thing means I can't do or buy something else. That's very useful and a very powerful thing to keep in mind and remember. But it also leads to the following, undeniably, in my mind, false uh, result, which is I don't care where my money comes from. So if I have an income of $50,000 a year, which I earn working hard, doing something that benefits other people, versus if I'm on a uh, welfare program that pays $50,000 a year, I'm equally happy because I have $50,000 to spend at the end of the year, throughout the year, that allows me to buy the things that I particularly enjoy. I might save some of it. But that doesn't matter. The point is that fifty thousand is fifty thousand. Expression that economists sometimes uses. You know, money is fungible. I don't really care where it comes from. I just care about what I can do with it. Well, that's not true. We know that's not true. No, most human beings would immediately recognize that's not true. Mm-hmm. They, they. Some people would much rather uh, earn the fifty thousand through honest work. That's that's legal and and benefits other people. Other people would be perfectly happy to take a check and not have to go to work every day. But those are really different things. And the economist's response, if you if you complain about that to economists, they'll say, "Oh yeah, we build that into our model. We'll just, we'll have, we'll say people don't just care about stuff; they care about how they earn their stuff." <laughs> and that's, you know, that's true. You can do that. But the, my point is, is that after a while, you forget that, and you tend to focus on the the uh, the amount of money, and then forget the fact that how it's earned matters a lot to people. So, you know, when you talk about, say, a universal basic income, the idea that people could get a certain amount of money whether they worked or not, which is what we already have that to some extent with welfare, uh, but it has lots of strings attached to it. But if we propose a string-free world where people can have a certain amount of money per month, say four or $5,000 per month or $2,000 per month or $1,000 per month and not have to work, uh, most economists just don't have anything to say about that. But hmm. that's okay. That should be their answer. I don't have anything to say about that. And the second point should be, and that's too bad because it's not unimportant. <laughs> and yet I think most economists... Uh, tend to forget that, uh, those two points. So uh, I I think the economic worldview, to come back to your original question, it, it does lead to a false sense of, oh, yeah, this is something I can latch onto and use as a relentless tool to make the world a better place. And I think that's a dangerous idea, although I do think economics is quite useful. I think it has limits, and those limits are often forgotten by economists.
1: You know, you're talking about the person who does care about, you know, where their money comes from, because it, it isn't just a matter of, oh, I have $50,000. And I think you and I both know, and I think for the most part, people would want that $50,000 to come from their own efforts. And that, you know, you, you earlier talked about, you know, use one's gifts and applying them is often a very, you know, one way of measuring or thinking about human flourishing. And I wonder how much of the equation of what human flourishing is comes back to finding one's way by finding ways to serve others
0: mm-hmm.
1: rather than just make it about, you know, well, I need to have a job. I might as well find something I can like, you know, because yep. we have that luxury in the West to do that. Yep. Um we I say we, I I do understand not everybody has that luxury. Uh so don't <laughs> do that That's caveat. Too. Yeah. Yep. Um but you know human vocation is really Important. Uh, it's something that's important to me. Um, I know people who just like to do things with their hands, and they earn a living, and that's fine. Um, and maybe they see meaning in it that I don't personally see. But uh, wh- what do you think of the meaning in in our vocation and in, in career and in, in
0: our labor? Yeah, I think. Well, in the second High rap video that I did with Champa Popola, we have the line that I I very much love, which is, "Give us a chance, so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another." And I think that's what one of the things that makes market-based economics so uh, mm. powerful for not just creating wealth, but for creating meaning and and satisfaction. Having said that, it's striking to me how little we teach that, how little we think about it in our daily lives. Often, you know, we you, you and I both have podcasts. We have listeners out there who presumably enjoy what we are saying or hearing. But what they hear from us that or they wouldn't keep listening, I don't think about them enough. You know, I'm glad some of them send me emails because it reminds me that I'm important in their lives, um, which is easy to forget when you're sitting with this headset on and you're chatting away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I value the connection that I have with the guests, just like you're in this conversation. I like that you and I are exchanging ideas and and talking back and forth with one another in a conversation. But it's easy to forget there's these other people listening. You don't see them. And that's true of every profession. A lot of the benefits that your job creates, that your time spent is 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 doing it, is very abstract. You know, it's not like a baker. If you're a baker, you see happy people and you're good at it. You see happy people in your store every day. And mm-hmm. ideally they're lined up because yeah. you're, you're such a good baker. And that's deeply satisfying, as opposed to say, uh, the state buys the bread, no matter how good it is, <laughs> and hands it out to people. Yeah, that's that's a less, to me, a very much less attractive world.
1: Yeah, my uh, recently, my daughter and my wife were reading one of the Tuttle Twins books, which had to, which was a children's version. In this particular instance, of the iPencil pencil theme, and it was about you know, the story of children learning that no one person knows how to make a pencil, and that not only do we need to think about all the different parts and who makes those parts, but the people who make the, you know, the plastic for the lunch boxes for the workers who do the trees, you know, the, yep. the, like you go that level deep and my kids sure. eyes are just like, whoa, like, and they're, you we'll know, they're, it, it is. And <laughs> what, what I thought was really interesting is last night they, they, you know, they asked me, they said, how do we help the pencil get made? Because the book said that, you know, like in, in some way, everyone helps make these pencils. And I don't know if it was quite that way. That's what, that's what they understood from what the author uh-huh. was saying. And I said, Well, that's a really tough question, but we serve people, you know, like just the fact that they were they were thinking about how do we help, you know, this grand, you know, interaction between other human beings was I, I for me, somebody who likes economics and and likes to study them and my kids are, you know, not quite there yet, uh, that was really touching for me to hear them oh, to talk about.
0: Oh, it's beautiful because you know, part of what I'm alluding to is is this unseen. Web of cooperation that takes place for the simplest of products, and of course, this is more complicated products. The web's larger and more extended, and we don't see it; it's unseen. Mm-hmm. No one coordinates it. No one designed it. No one steers it, and yet it's incredibly flexible and responsive. I use the example often of the the hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of of, of Chinese who move from the countryside to the city over the last few decades in search of economic opportunity, and many of them started sending their children to school who hadn't gone before, and many of those children started using pencils, and presumably, and yet there's no pencil shortage in the United States, and when you go to Staples or Walmart or CVS to buy a pencil, they don't say, well, come back in a year or two, the Chinese bought them all this year. So you go to bed at night, Totally unconcerned and never noticing how this massive social change in the Chinese countryside, so which should have affected you, was unnoticed. Mm-hmm. It just got coordinated without anyone. There's no pencil czar in the United States. There's no uh, cedar tree czar to make sure there's enough cedar for the pencils, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to for other things that cedar is used for furniture or other building projects. And that that's. That's an incredible thing, and it's marvelous. That's what Hayek called it a marvel, and it is a marvel. And, and children, I think, can appreciate it, and we should tell our children that. You know, it's, That's why I created this poem, It's a Wonderful Loaf, to show the coordination that takes place across thousands and thousands, maybe millions of individuals to make a simple loaf of bread. And it's there in every city in the world, unless you're in Venezuela. Venezuela, where it's top down and un- and it, and it's coordinated, and there is a probably a bread czar or something mm. like it. There's no bread on the shelves, mm. <laughs> and people fight and commit violence against one another to get at the scarce bread. And in the rest of the world, the places that allow market forces to work, some of them very capitalist relative to others, some much more regulated. Still, in all of them, I use you know in Paris, in Jerusalem. In Oslo, in New York, there's lots of bread, lots of kinds of bread, and it's not very expensive. Fabulous. Mm. <laughs> and that's a wondrous thing and we should we should appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Well, and I've heard you use the illustration of uh, pizza uh, Super Bowl. You know, uh, there's yeah. still there's still bagels available on Sunday morning of the Super Bowl, even though there's been a lot of dough uh, yep. that diverted to pizza.
0: Biggest pizza day of the year, um, but you can get anything you want made out of flour. Still that day, it's it's um, just keeps working. Nobody yep. notices. Just you, know, you and me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> we notice. <laughs> right uh, you know, you, you talked about, you know, we get to serve one another. And I think a lot of people who are not in favor of, you know, kind of an individualistic approach, they look at capitalism and they see that it's all about seeking profit. And even, you know, even, you know, they think a lot of times they think, you know, billionaires seeking profit and that's just ruining us or something, which we'll talk about here a little bit, but they think of, you know, individuals just seeking their self-interest and we, and, uh, Figuring things out, you know, for themselves. And they don't and I I know many libertarians communicate that profit is sort of just a measure one way of measuring that we know that we're, you know, doing well by other people, like we can serve other people. And I think it's really tough to communicate to people that's that this anti-capitalist mindset is actually kind of like actually harmful toward human flourishing. So you know kind of that's a meandering way to get to my question is do you think we can have human flourishing without free market capitalism or mean you, know, you can even kind of parse what you hear or think of when you think of those terms. but'll I'll leave it there.
0: Well of course, there's a lot of range in what we might call free market capitalism. There's a lot of intervention. In the United States, for example, we're not a free market economy and certain segments of the economy, such as healthcare or education, have been completely distorted by various regulations. So we have to be careful, I guess, in thinking about what we mean by that. But certainly if we think about an extreme uh, socialist or or communist society, uh, the ones in practice have not been, I would argue, places where human beings flourished. Uh, despite the best of intentions, and often the intentions are not so good either. But, uh, you know, if you read a book like uh, In the First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, or you read accounts of daily life in the Soviet Union, it was pretty gray and dreary, mm-hmm. and um, not a place that most people wanted to to be part of. In fact, people wanted to leave. You know, I was like to point out that the guards face south on the Florida-Cuba border. Uh, in Cuba, they, they're they trying to keep people from leaving. They don't have to keep people from Florida swimming to Cuba, mm. uh, even though it's this more egalitarian state, uh, supposedly. I don't know if it truly is, but that's the claim. Uh, and in the United States, which is supposedly you know, so unequal and so unfair, people are exploited. Strangely enough, people risk their lives. Poor people risk their lives to be part of it. They come here to work. They come here to flourish. They come here to help their children flourish because they think that's going to be a better place for their children to realize their dreams, achieve something with their lives. And I think that's often forgotten uh, by people who you know, f- think about, say, the profit motive as, as an unattractive one. I, I would certainly agree. By itself, it's not attractive. If your goal in life is to make as much money as possible, y- you might not always do the right thing. And I think that's a bad rule of thumb for a good life. But the idea that if you can't cover your costs, you don't get to keep using resources, which is a different way to say what the profit requirement is. I'll say it again. If you can't cover your costs, you don't get to keep using resources. That's a way to make sure that resources don't get badly used. It's pretty amazing. Uh, of course, as Milton Friedman like to point out, it's a profit and loss system it's not just a profit system a lot of bu- a lot of businesses lose money can't cover their costs they have an idea for a new restaurant a new type of food a new product and they discover tragically that or not but they discover that they can't generate enough revenue from selling that product to cover the costs of creating it and that means probably it shouldn't exist and that's a really great rule of thumb. And if you feel otherwise, well, there are some things you could give money to, you could subsidize, you could use donations rather than sales as a way to sustain a product. Um, charities do that. Uh, econ talk, my podcast is is a charity. It's it is zero cost to the listeners and it's funded by a foundation in Indianapolis. That's a different model that, uh, that is allowed to exist in a, in a free market society. But in general, Uh, we often want to rely on this very powerful set of incentives called profit and loss, and it works really well.
1: Hey, everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City, and the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So, of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative. My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI twenty five all lowercase in order to get twenty five percent off the ticket price. So again, that's libertarianchristians.com dot com slash debate. Use promo code LCI twenty five all lowercase. Hope to see you there. So let's shift to a couple, you know, sort of wider policy things that I wanted to ask you about, and you know. 100 years ago being a millionaire was a big deal and even 40 years ago being a millionaire was a big deal and it's still a big deal to a lot of Americans are yeah. like hey I want to <laughs> be a millionaire but that but having you know winning a million dollars you know on a show uh, didn't is not quite as nice as you know winning a billion dollars because now we have billionaires that are out there and we we've, yeah. we've got a handful of companies that that keep uh, hitting the one trillion dollar market cap you know mark, you know become the first trillion dollar company you know for a day and then <laughs> someone else takes it. so we're, we're we're hitting that peak. and so whatever you know in terms of like economic value or economic you know like price value for you know individuals the the new top is now billionaire. and one of the ways in which I think about this and you can critique this if you want, is that at s- someday it might be 200 years from now, you know, hitting a six-figure salary in 2020 right now, you know, in 200 years, it might be like, oh yeah, I've made my first billion. And that's, you know, just the, the equivalent of us today hitting, you know, $100,000 in salary. And so eventually we'll all have, you know, sort of that baseline, maybe not standard of living, but there's there's always this new peak that we can, we can achieve too. Um, and so when people criticize billionaires um, for having too much, I thought, well, but that's what our great, 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 great grandkids are going to be able to have if we continue. You know, in in terms of this, is that is that one way of thinking of it? Because I don't have that animosity toward billionaires. And they- yeah,
0: I don't need there except for the wrong kind. We can talk about that in a minute. Sure. But you know, I think there's two things going on here. One is inflation. So a million dollars isn't what it used to be because a million dollars today doesn't buy as much as a million dollars bought forty years ago. But that's not really your point. Your point is is that our expectations of what is normal life have grown as our standard of living has grown. And that's kind of an amazing thing. Most Americans today, uh, and many people around the world, are better off than the richest person in 1750, the richest person in 1900. Now the richest person in 1900, whether it was Rockefeller or Carnegie or J.P. Morgan or whoever it was in 1900, that person didn't have a smartphone, couldn't listen to Spotify, couldn't get a hip replacement, had to have probably, I think, root canal using a shot of whiskey instead of Novocaine or mm-hmm. some kind of anesthetic, uh, couldn't get a heart repair. You know, The list goes on and on and on, died from an infection because they didn't have antibiotics. So think about the incredible improvements in our well, physical, material well-being, our spiritual and psychological well-being is a bigger challenge. But just in terms of material well-being, there's, to me, no doubt that we're all... As well off, or maybe better off than there's the top one percent of a hundred years ago, and I assume that in a hundred years we'll all be as well off as the person we think of now is material well, as materially rich. Having said that, of course, you know Jeff Bezos just bought an enormous estate. We all we can't all have enormous estates uh, because land is is just physically scarce. So there will be a few things that people will compete over that only the richest will be able to have. But in general. Our standard living just grows over time, and that's a beautiful thing. I'm more worried about that being sustained than I am about the fact that some people have more than others. Now, having said that, there are people who earn their money in ways that are not attractive through cronyism, through special favors from the government, and we ought to stop doing those. Uh, We ought to stop subsidizing the financial sector. We ought to probably stop subsidizing – and there's a better case to be made for it, but I still think it's wrong the way we subsidize education in the United States – It's benefited me. Both those two things have benefited me, right? The subsidies to wall street have made economists much more valuable because some of them go to wall street. So to keep them in academic life as I've been, I get a better salary than I otherwise would have gotten. And generally I'm in part of this industry that subsidizes the demand for my services. So Hmm. I've benefited from that too. I'm not proud of it. I think, I wish we hadn't done it, but I benefited from it. Um, But, you know, put those aside a lot of people are wealthy because they're really good at making other people happy. That would include LeBron James. It would include Adele. It would include uh, Angelina Jolie. It would include Scarlett Johansson. It would include uh, Stephen Curry. You name any entertainer, athlete, actor, actress, singer, songwriter, the scope that we have to entertain and delight 7 billion people around the world at relatively low distribution costs through the internet has made the most skilled among us incredibly wealthy relative to the most skilled among us 50 or 100 years ago. That doesn't bother me at all. I think it's great. Let's have more of it. Now, you can say we should tax some of that away and share it with other people. I don't agree, but that's a legitimate, you can say that. I mean, it's a legitimate position. Uh, but the idea that there's something inherently rigged or wrong with the system that allows people to get really rich, I think, is a misunderstanding of what generates really high salaries in 2020. So I think, um, yeah, I'm not so worried about most billionaires. Um, it, you know, Again, it depends on how they got their money.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that that is – one of the like big complaints about people like, and we'll pick on Jeff Bezos because that's just who people pick on right now, because you and I would probably both sit around for a good hour just marveling at how amazing our life is with Amazon. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, like last time you were on my program, we were talking about Uber and Costco. and And, you know, we can talk about Amazon right now and say, well, Amazon's made our lives easier. Look at this, Jeff Bezos is serving the world. I can get deliveries on Sunday. I order something on a five o'clock. I couldn't believe this the first time this happened. I I didn't even know it was going to happen. I ordered a backpack on like five 30 in the evening. And by nine o'clock the next morning, that backpack was, was in a box on my
0: doorstep. And and
1: I'm, I'm in a rural area. So that was (laughs) like, boom, I'm like, what the heck? Like, this is great. And then I noticed that I figured out why they have a warehouse relatively close to us now. But anyway, at the same time, there's this, all this glorious, you know, gains to be made at the same time for you and me not just Jeff Bezos. Uh there there is a lot of cronyism behind that. There is a lot of um ill-acquired if if we want to be judgmental about it, ill-acquired wealth. Um and so you know people talk about Elon Musk with the same thing. They they oh but he takes all these government subsidies, sure he's making this amazing new car that might be the future, but it it gets complicated because which which I know is a phrase you like to say, uh it's kind of a mix and you know, convincing people on the left, which is kind of what I have in mind here when we talk about people against capitalism, is is really tough because it is a mix. And you have to kind of parse that out if you if you can even do that.
0: Well, I think you have to make a distinction between, I would make a distinction between, say, Amazon and some other tech companies that have made their money by selling my, my information to third parties. Mm-hmm. Something that we might want to change the property rights system there. The way it's defaulted to the to the ownership of the tech companies. If we're talking about Amazon, I think it's pretty clear to me. It's clear to me that their great success stems overwhelmingly from a vision that was implemented through the web in a way that was incredibly effective and efficient, and it's just amazing. Now, it's not good for every single person. Obviously, if there's some products they discriminate against on their site. There are issues there that are worth talking about, but those are small relative to the overall impact. The opportunity to buy uh, books from all over the catalog compared to a world where you'd walk into a well, – most cities just didn't have a decent bookstore. Mm. Um, so giving people access to knowledge and information as they've done, if that was the only thing they did, I would be grateful for that vision. It's incredible. I think the reason that people don't like them is they think somehow that their success – is and profits are due to the fact that they exploit their workers and people who work for amazon can have a hard time it's not a a lot of the jobs at amazon not all of them obviously but the warehouse jobs are not uh glamorous the hours are long the breaks are short there's a lot of turnover i suspect and uh i think people think that's a huge part of their profitability it isn't in my view i'd be shocked if that's the case and i'd even go further than that make the point that Amazon's created opportunities for people who are struggling to find opportunities. This was true of Walmart as well before uh, Amazon came along to be both the most successful retailer and the retail that everybody likes to pretend that they hate (laughs) while they shop there. Amazon can't force anybody to work there. It's a sad thing that perhaps for some people that that's their most attractive option, but that's the issue, not Amazon's greed or people forget that wages are set mostly in a marketplace by horses outside the control of the employer and the employee. Uh, they're set through the interactions of, of lots of people, not any small handful of people. And so, yeah, I met a very smart, kind, wonderful person who told me that Amazon had patented a system for putting its workers in cages. And she actually believed that. I think that that was a form of slavery that they were uh, expecting to implement now that they would patented it. When I looked she was very serious, she's a wow. she was a journalist actually, and i i I'd never heard of this. So you know I looked into it. Yes, Amazon did patent something that has a cage like thing it, it was to protect workers in the picking process at a warehouse filling orders. It wasn't to keep them it under I don't know just a horrible thought i I don't even that that someone would think of that as a as an actual thing, a thoughtful person was just shocking to me, but, but that's where we're at. And I think there are people mm. who make that mistake. They mistakenly think that somehow Amazon sets the wages. It's like saying, you know, where is my salary higher at, at Stanford University, which is my employer, uh, where I work at the Hoover Institution, or say on Wall Street? Well, obviously, it's going to be higher at Stanford because Stanford's a nonprofit. They're going to be nicer. Hmm. But, of course, my salary is much lower at Stanford. Stanford doesn't set my salary. My competitive opportunities set my salary. What I can do other than Stanford is what sets my salary at Stanford. And similarly, to get me to work for Wall Street, which is something I wouldn't enjoy, they have to pay me a lot more. It's not because they're kind. It's not because they're not greedy. They're greedy and they're not kind. But the market forces them to pay its employees more than they'd like. And similarly, Amazon pays a relatively low amount to people working in their warehouse. It's not because they're mean. It's not because they're greedy. It's because the alternatives for the skills of the people in those warehouses aren't as high as they might otherwise be. And if you want to fix that, improve the education those people have. That's the right way to fix it, not to force Amazon to pay them more, which usually is not going to help the people who, overall, might help some of the ones who get to keep their jobs. It's just going to increase the amount and pace of automation that takes away opportunities for human beings. So I just think people don't always think through the full ramifications of how these wages are set and how these market forces work.
1: So I want to I want to switch gears yet again <laughs> a little bit here to talk just a little bit about politics. And I think the word politics is often more narrowly thought of as electoral politics and we just had somebody on to talk about voting. Uh, Chris Fryman, he talked about how it's okay to ignore politics, but on the one hand the word, you know, the word politics is really the the most broad way of thinking about it is how do we relate to one another in ways that affect one another and that includes voting. That includes sometimes, you know, picketing and doing social action and stuff like that. I have often wondered whether or not any of that is fruitful or is it just, you know what, go to work, do really well. You know, I read Jason Brennan wrote an article that said, you know, instead of voting, you should work overtime and donate the money to charity. And that would be more beneficial for the world. And so is is political participation part of the calculus for human flourishing in your mind?
0: I'm not a very political person. I've not been to a lot of rallies or protests. Uh, I do vote. Uh, I vote religiously, meaning I try to vote most of the time, certainly in every presidential election. I don't probably vote in every single local election. I probably missed a few. But uh, in general, I think voting is a good idea. I do understand the Jason Brennan's point that, you know, what you actually accomplish in the half an hour or whatever it takes you to vote might be relatively small, might be zero. Most of the time, any one of us. And yet, together as a group, it accomplishes something important, which is it expresses our preferences for for usually a very stark choice. We only usually get two of them. Uh, There might be a third, but in Mm -hmm. general, it's an unpleasant thing to have to hold your nose and vote for somebody that you don't – inevitably don't particularly like. Uh, That's the reality of voting. It's a very different calculus than walking into a – deciding whether to buy a car or not. Imagine if there were only two cars, a small, you know, a mini and a minivan. Well, that'd be no fun, you know, except for a handful of people who needed one of the other. The rest of us go like, well, I, you know, I guess I got to get the minivan because I got a couple kids, but I wish I could have had <laughs> a sedan, you know. So that's kind of like what voting is. You're constrained to a very narrow set of choices. And I understand that it's, it's not very satisfying to cast your vote, uh, but it would be if there was a dictator running, you know, somebody who was plotting to destroy the country. Or pursuing something you thought was horrific policy wise and uh, you and the millions of others who thought that was a bad idea went and voted for the alternative so i wouldn't say politics is unimportant it's certainly unimportant at the individual level but i i follow the categorical imperative of kant here i don't always like to follow up but here i think it very much is appropriate that you want to do the thing that if everybody did it how would the world look and then if nobody voted you virtually no one you would allow a small group of people to perhaps pick a really horrific candidate. So I would never say that voting's a bad idea in a democracy. It's probably a pretty good idea. I understand the temptations to free ride and read to the blind or help a grandmother go shopping or whatever is your favorite charitable act, but, or just spend time with your own kids, by the way, which is fine too. Also a, a way that to make the world a, a better place. That's my go-to but, alternative when I talk yeah, to people about but, this. but, I don't think politics is unimportant. Um, I do think too many times we are seduced by political solutions to pursue them at the expense of less centralized and bottom up solutions. That that I agree with. And I also think that a lot of the time the best thing to do is to tend your own vineyard and uh do what you do well. And that might be running a podcast and it might be taking care of your family, and it might be working hard and making opportunities for other people in a business. So I think there's a, a zillion ways to make the world a better place that are better than, say, being, quote, an activist, uh, a phrase I do find somewhat um, frightening. So I'm sympathetic to the point, but I think it can be taken too far.
1: If you were to like, let's just give you magical powers, you snap your fingers and humanity would have this sort of characteristics or qualities that
0: you think would be universally, universally good, but what would they be? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, beyond the, that's beyond my job description by a factor of a zillion. Yeah, it uh, it kind of yeah. goes against – I mean, it's a fun exercise, but it kind of goes against the whole idea that we need to discover the things we need to discover about ourselves. That We talked about in the opening of our conversation. Now, there are certain traits that, that I find frustrating in humanity or in myself, impatience, anger, jealousy, a need for control. I mean, I, I wish I had fewer of those traits. And I wish I had had become better at overcoming them, and i I'm sixty five I haven't given up. I think I can work continue to get better at some of those at being less angry and being more willing to give up control and to be more patient. but i don't I don't think I'd take a pill that would do all those things automatically uh, if it came with some side effects that maybe I wouldn't like. It would seem to me to be the opposite of what it is to flourish.
1: You know, and I wrote down that question. As I was thinking about this, I I had a hunch your answer would be what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Russ, I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me. There was about, you know, 30% more questions that I have that uh, we just don't have time to get into. So maybe we'll save that for another future recording. Thanks for being on the podcast.
0: Great talking with you, Doc. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.